Okay, so we come back to Numbers, and we pick this up in chapter 20. And before we go into Numbers 20, we should note that back earlier in Exodus, uh, soon after Israel had left Egypt, you'll remember in Exodus chapter 17, as the people came out of Egypt, there was no water for them to drink. And so the Lord said to Moses, and, and this is really a, 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 a striking pun intended, passage in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, the Lord says to, to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. So this is a remarkable passage because the Lord says, I'm going to stand on the rock, and then you strike the rock. And, and what's, what's interesting is that there are texts in Deuteronomy and in the Psalms that refer to the Lord as the rock of Israel. They're in a desert. These are desert conditions, and if they don't have water, they're not going to live. And, and so this passage almost sets up a scenario where, where the striking of the rock of Israel the Lord himself, he's on the rock. The striking of the Lord provides water from the rock for Israel to drink and live. That happens at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings. And now in Numbers 20, near the end of Israel's wilderness wanderings, there's another episode like this where, where they have no water and it's, it's as though they don't remember what's happened. They don't remember the way that the Lord has provided for them in the past. So in, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 2, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Which is just a bitter and, and unbelieving and dangerous statement. They'd rather die than trust the Lord to provide. And then they accused Moses of bringing them out into the wilderness to kill them. Why have you brought out the assembly uh, of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And again, God's glory shows up uh, to judge them. And then the Lord says to Moses in verse 8 of Numbers 20, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So this is a different command. Now Moses is not to strike the rock, he's to speak to the rock. Verse 10, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. So the Lord mercifully provides water for Israel, even though Moses struck the rock instead of just speaking to it. But he holds Moses to account. He's he is a God who is forgiving, but who doesn't clear the guilty. So look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given you. So Moses is not going to be allowed to enter into the land because he struck the rock. Because in striking the rock, he, the Lord says, you're not believing in me, and you're not upholding me as holy. 
And, and for his failure to do that, Moses is not allowed to enter the land. This passage is a lesson to us, and it tells us that God takes his word very seriously and that God holds people to account for what he tells them to do. So, so this is a devastating consequence. Moses is not going to be allowed to enter the land, but we shouldn't conclude, we should not conclude from this. And I think it would be, it would be wrong and really trivial and, and, and I think foolish to conclude from this that Moses is not a believer or that Moses is somehow not saved because he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Moses, we've just read in Numbers 12 about how he speaks face to face with the Lord. And over in, in Deuteronomy 34, we're going to read at, at the end of Deuteronomy, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So the Lord, it, Moses has this uniquely close relationship with the Lord, and he clearly believes God, and he's clearly part of the believing remnant. He's clearly redeemed, but, but still, there are consequences for him for his life in this world, and, and one of those consequences is he's not going to be allowed to go into the promised land. Now, in, in recent years, a very uh, heated controversy has erupted over these passages. And, and, and the way that Paul interprets these passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that, that all Israel ate the spiritual food and they all drank the, the spiritual drink from the rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the first few verses of the chapter. And uh, there... Because Paul refers to the rock that followed them, uh, some, even some interpreters have, have, I think, wrongly concluded that Paul believed in the tradition, the so-called tradition of the movable well. The idea is that there's, there, there's one um, parallel reference to this movable well in the extra-biblical Jewish literature. I believe it's in Pseudo-Philo, and, and, and uh, apparently th there was this tradition that uh, Israel drank from the rock at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, and then they drank from the rock again at the end, and, and, and so how, how did they get water in between? Well, the rock, the well, followed them around through the wilderness, and, and some have suggested that's what Paul believed, and that's what Paul is referring to when he says they drank from the rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. I don't think that's correct. I think that it's more likely that Paul has in view that um, uh, this idea that, that, that God is being identified with the rock, and, 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 and this is accomplished there in Exodus 17 where, where God stands on the rock, and then the rock is struck, and and there are other places in the in the Old Testaments into the New Old Testament into the New where God is referred to as the Rock of Israel. And clearly, that God is going about with Israel uh, in the pillar of cloud and fire. And so I think that um, what Paul is essentially saying is that they're they're being sustained, they're drinking from this messianic hope and and the presence of God with them, the the hope that God is going to bring this deliverer to them. Um, 
I, I don't think that it's a necessary conclusion that um, that that Paul believed that there was there was this rock or this well that followed Israel around out in the wilderness. I think that's a, really a pretty narrow-minded and unlikely interpretation. It, it may be one of the possibilities. I don't think it's the most plausible possibility <clears throat> for explaining what's going on. Uh, but at any rate, that 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 that's been a a, a point of controversy in recent years. And and um, as I say, I think I think that Greg Beal's interpretation and and his explanation. Of, of the connections between God and the rock and God clearly being with the people is a, is a better uh, explanation for what Paul has in view when he says they drank from the rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. I think he means God's presence was with them and he was sustaining their hopes for this coming Messiah and, um, and that's what, what sustained the people as they moved through the wilderness. Anyway, as we, as we continue here, um, eventually... Uh, Israel is, is, is going along and they come to Moab in, in Numbers chapter 22. And a very significant uh, sequence, a series of events happens here in Numbers 22. The people of Israel set out, Numbers 22, 1 and following, and, and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And in preceding chapters, uh, Israel has defeated the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. So Balak is the king of Moab, and uh, Balak is identified with his people here. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, clearly this is Balak speaking to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them, and drive them from the land. And this is a very significant statement, what, what Balak says next, because it's intentionally recalling what the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12:3. Remember, the Lord said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And now Balak says to Balaam, I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. This is uh, a redo of the language that God said to um, Abram. And uh, look down at verse 12. Uh, well, before, well, Balaam wants to go. God doesn't want him to go. Balaam wants to go. God said to Balaam in verse 12, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse this people, for they are blessed. Um, uh, Balak is insistent. And so the Lord finally says, Okay, fine, go. He gives him permission to go, uh, but Balaam nevertheless has this encounter on the way. Uh, so in verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now, uh, the Lord is apparently upset with Balaam because Balaam is more apparently, given what the New Testament says about Balaam, and from what we see here, Balaam is more concerned for money 
than he is for God. B Balaam um, would rather have the money from Balak than have the blessing of God. Balaam would rather try to do what Balak wants him to do than identify with the people of God. And, and it, 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 it goes on this way. Even though Balaam seems to have these genuine experiences with God and seems to genuinely prophesy over in Numbers 31 in verse 8, Balaam, the son of Baor, is going to be killed in battle with the sword when he's fighting with Moab against Israel. So, so Balaam wants to accomplish what Balak calls him to do, even at the expense of his own life. Balaam sells his soul to Balak and Moab for money. He'd rather have money and Balak's favor than the pleasure of God and identify with Israel and know God's blessing, even though he knows that God has blessed Israel. It's a really, it's a really uh, condemning portrayal of, of Balaam. So there's that, and there's also this, this interesting way in which Balaam is going to describe Israel. And I want to read this and, and make a point about it before we look at what's about to happen with this angel. So over in Numbers 24, in verse 6, Balaam is going to describe Israel, and he says in verse 5, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river. So he's looking at the tents of Israel, and he says how lovely they are. They're like palm groves, like aloes planted beside a river. So he's looking at the tents, and he's likening them to a garden. And then he says, having said in verse 6, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. And you, you look through the Old and New Testaments for places where God plants a garden, where God plants trees by waters. And you find some interesting statements like Psalm 1, you know, but, but you also find the Garden of Eden. And, and I think that Balaam, the language that, that Moses depicts Balaam using to describe Israel here, like aloes, uh, like, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. This is language that intentionally recalls the Lord planting a garden in the east in Eden. And then there's, there's this water, this river that's running uh, out of Eden to water the garden. I think this is intentionally in Numbers 24-6 recalling the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, 8 through 10. And you can, you can set the language used in the two passages side by side and it's, it's parallel. So with that in mind, remember what the Lord did when He drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. When He drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, He placed an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And now Balaam is approaching the camp of Israel. And the, camp of is the people of Israel, they have, they have experienced the blessing that was lost when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden because God's presence has come down and taken up residence in their midst in the tabernacle, which is like a, a, a mini picture, a microcosm of the world, the tabernacle is. And God takes up residence in that tabernacle just as He had taken up residence in the world and dwelt among His people in the garden. And now Balaam is going to approach 
that people that are kind of like a new Garden of Eden, and he's going to encounter this angel with a drawn sword. And I think that these aspects of the narrative are Moses' way of depicting the significance of Israel. Israel is something like a new Garden of Eden. They are a new place where God dwells among humanity. And so in Numbers 22, verse 22, God's anger was kindled because Balaam went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. And then you remember what happens. The donkey sees the angel, and he, and he lays down. And look, look at what the donkey sees in verse 23. He sees the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And uh, eventually the Lord speaks to Balaam and, and, and opens his eyes. The, Lord, or the, the donkey spoke to Balaam. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he, in verse 31. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. I think this is telling us that Balaam is approaching the new Eden, the people of Israel. Well, Balaam repents and he agrees basically to say only what God tells him to say in verse 35. Then he tells Balak in verse 38, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And then when he opens his mouth to speak, look at verse 5 of, of Numbers 23. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. And, and, and verse 7, Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. And now Balaam is going to uh, restate Genesis 12, 12 3 in, in Numbers 23, 8. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom Yahweh has not denounced? And, and then he goes on about the greatness of Israel. Uh, and, and, and Balak objects to this. Balak, Balak doesn't like this in verse 11. He says, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And Balaam says, look, I told you that I could only speak what the Lord tells me to speak. And so Balak tries it from another angle, takes him to another place. Verse 16, the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. And then look at Numbers 23, 18. Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. And maybe you have this next verse memorized, Numbers 23, 19. This, this verse has reference to this broader story about God blessing Abraham and making these promises to Abraham. So when, when Numbers 23, 19, Balaam says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What, what Balaam means is, look, God has blessed Israel. He's not going to change that. And I can't change that. Verse 20, Balaam says, Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Yahweh, their God, is with them. And then notice the next words, And the shout of a king is among them. So, Notice how the Lord and the king are placed side by side. This is, this is going to be sort of a, a reiterated theme throughout the Old Testament where this, this acknowledgement of God's presence is going to be followed by this statement about Israel's king. And the two seem to be put side by side often in the Old Testament. And, and I don't think Balaam only means God is their king. I think Balaam means 
Um, the Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. They're going to have a human king. But yet there's this, this close proximity of, the, of their God and their king. And, and knowing what we know from the New Testament, believing the New Testament, I think we can, we can see that these are, are um, precursors and, 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 and laying the foundation for uh, the incarnation of uh, the Lord of Israel, God, Yahweh, as the King of Israel, Jesus, the Messiah, the King. Look at verse 22. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Uh, these, these wild oxen, they would fight with their horns. Their horns would be used to establish their domination over other animals. And it's God who has brought them out of Egypt, and it's God who will fight their battles. That's what Balaam is saying. And then verse 23, he essentially says, what I'm doing is useless and, and will accomplish nothing. So he says there in, in Numbers 23, 23, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it will be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought. Behold a people. And now, now as Balaam continues, it's as though Balaam knows the promises that Jacob spoke over Judah in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. And, and uh, I, I guess the Lord inspired Balaam to say these words, that or Moses felt the freedom to take what Balaam said and uh, put it in this language that matches what uh, Genesis 49, 8 through 12 says. At any rate, I mean, however it happened, whether Balaam actually spoke this or whether Moses took uh, Balaam's statements and maybe slightly rephrased them, but, but still represented what he said and just put it into biblical languages, language, I don't know. But what I do know is Numbers 23-24 uh, presents Balaam, Moses presents Balaam, stating essentially Genesis 49-9. So Genesis 49-9 says this, um, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Numbers 23, 24 presents Balaam, Balaam saying, Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. And if we were looking at this in Hebrew, it would be very, very close. Um, same thing over in Numbers 24, 9. Balaam speaks again there, and he says, He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? That's, that's uh, substantially what Genesis 49, 9 says. Um, back in, in Numbers 23, in verse 25, Balak is frustrated, and he, and he just tells Balaam, Don't curse them at all, and don't bless them at all. Just stop. He doesn't, he doesn't want Balaam to bless Israel any more. And Balaam um, uh, says, look, verse 26, did I not tell you all that Yahweh says I must do? And, and Balak says, okay, let's go to another place. Let's take another angle on this. Let's get another look. Maybe you can curse them from this other place. So he goes and look at verse 2 of Numbers 24. The Spirit of God came upon Balaam, and he took up his discourse and said, and as he's uh, blessing Israel, uh, we, we saw Numbers 24, 6, that seems to liken Israel to the Garden of Eden. And then verse 7, 
There's this statement, water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. He's going to be uh, uh, abundantly provided for and, and numerous. And then in the middle of verse 7, his king, Israel's king, shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So the kingdom of Israel's king is going to be higher than that of Agag, and his kingdom is going to be exalted. And then verse 8 again. Verse 8 Notice how, um, again, there's the juxtaposition of the king of Israel and God, uh, just as we saw in Numbers 23, 21, and 22, so also in Numbers 24, 7, and 8. Look at, look at Numbers 24, 8. This is just like 23, 22. Numbers 24, 8. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. God is going to defeat all his enemies. And then we get to 24.9, which I just read the first part of. And then something very important happens in the second part of Numbers 24.9. And it's this. The first part of Numbers 24.9 quotes Genesis 49.9, the blessing to Judah, Jacob's blessing of Judah. The second half of Numbers 24.9 quotes Genesis 12.3. And, and that is a very significant interpretive move. So look at Numbers 24.9. He crouched down. He crouched. He lay down like a lion. And like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Genesis 49.9. Then look at the rest of the verse. Numbers 24.9. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Genesis 12.3. What this does is it, it brings together the promise to Abraham and ties it to the blessing of Judah. So that if you've read to this point and you don't already know God's blessing to Abraham is going to be accomplished through the descendant of Judah to whom this promise was made in Genesis 49, 9 and 10 about the scepter not departing from between his feet. If you don't know that, by the time you get to Numbers 24, 9, you know it now. So what, what has essentially happened is Moses has taken these two lines of promise and he's by presenting Balaam as stating them both, Moses is showing his audience these two promises belong together as one. That's what's going on here. And this is, this is glorious. Then look down at Numbers 24, uh, verse 17, as Balaam is, is articulating this final oracle. He says in verse 17, and he's already alluded twice to the king, and now he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. And that reference to a scepter is the same word used in Genesis 49.10 about the ruler staff not departing from between Judah's feet. And now another very significant interpretive move is going to be made. We've, we've seen that, that uh, Moses depicts Balaam tying together the blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 with the promise to Judah, the blessing of Judah in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. And now uh, it's as though Balaam is going to reach all the way back to Genesis 3, 15, grab a hold of that and bring it together with Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and Genesis 49, 8 through 12. So look at Numbers 24, 17. Having said, a scepter shall arise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. So this king in Israel, who's from Judah, who's going to bring to pass the blessings of Abraham, he's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. 
The enemies of Israel are going to have their heads crushed. And it's the king who's going to, to accomplish this. He's going to break down all the sons of Sheth. This is, I think this is an allusion to Genesis 3.15. And I think that, that uh, Moses has depicted Balaam now tying together the promise in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of, uh, promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12.1 through 3 and the promise of God to Judah through Jacob in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Those promises are all brought together here. And so the reader of Numbers now knows, having worked from Genesis through Numbers, the reader of Numbers now knows this is the way that God's plan is going to be accomplished. There's going to be this one deliverer who's going to be the seed of the woman, seed of Abraham. Now we know seed of Judah. And, and it's this deliverer who's going to crush the heads of the enemies of the people of God. And he's going to possess the ruler's staff. And uh, through him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, just as God promised to Abraham. And he's going to reign forever. The ruler's staff will never depart from between his feet. Well, after this, um, Balaam realizes there's no cursing Israel. God has blessed them. I can't revoke it. There's no cursing them. And so he tries a new strategy. And the strategy that he tries is sending into the camp these seductive Moabite women. And so that, that's what they do. They look, at, look at Numbers 25, 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to, sacrifice, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs and, and, and so forth, and, and, and they're going to kill all the people have, who have committed this idolatry. And, um, and uh, we read over in Numbers uh, um, uh, 31 that uh, the people are to take vengeance upon um, Midian because in verse 16 of Numbers 31, on Balaam's advice, they caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of, of Peor. So Balaam, he figures out, we, you know, we can't, we can't curse these people, but we can turn them away from their God. And, and, and so they send in these, these idolatrous women. Idolatry and sexual immorality always seem to go together in the Bible. And so uh, these women, they, they lead the men into sexual immorality, and then they lead the men into idolatry. And there's this famous account of, of Phineas, um, where, look at, look at verse um, 6 of Numbers 25, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. And, um, and so the, the zeal of, of Phinehas becomes famous in Israel. And there's even this remarkable statement in Psalm 105 where we read that, um, that, the, that uh, it was, a, maybe it's one of, somewhere it's stated, if I can find it, that the Lord 
uh, reckoned this as righteousness to Phineas. And I think it's Psalm uh, 105, but my eyes are not landing on it. Uh, 106.30, then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. And so Phineas's zeal is, is, is uh, famous in Israel, and it's counted to him for righteousness, and I think it's because he's acting on faith. He's, he's believing God's word, and on the basis of God's word, he's believing better to kill that guy than to let him commit this outrage in Israel. And so Phineas's faith prompts his action, and then that, that action, the faith that drove that action, is accounted to him as righteousness. I don't think there's any, any divide between what, what Psalm 106 says and what Genesis 15:6 says and what Romans 4 teaches and what James 2 teaches. I think they're all essentially saying the same thing. Uh, the faith that's counted as righteousness is a faith that influences what you do in your life. So the people of Israel are commissioned to attack Israel. They take a new census in Numbers 26, and no Israelites die after Numbers 26. Uh, Moses appoints Joshua as his successor in Numbers 27, and then the people um, prepare themselves for the new march on Canaan, and, um, and they prepare to go up and take the promise, the land of promise. And um, there's, there's a, uh, all of this is important, but look at, look at Numbers 35, 34. The Lord says to them, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So this is the idea. God's glory is at stake in Israel. God dwells among this people. And, and they're, they're not to defile the land because, because the Lord is there. And so what we see in Numbers, I think, uh, just as we saw in Genesis and Exodus, is the Lord saving His people through judgment. So the Lord saves Israel in Numbers through the judgment that falls on the wilderness generation. They come under the judgment of God, and through the judgment that falls on the wilderness generation, a new generation arises and gets another shot at taking the land. And uh, similarly, through the judgment of God that falls on Midian after the Baal Peor incident, through that judgment of their enemies, the people of Israel are delivered to walk in holiness. Through the judgment that Phineas visits upon that that Israelite and that Midianite girl. Uh, through that judgment, the people are delivered and, and the plague is stayed by the atonement that, that Phineas makes. And through all this, through all this saving and judging, the Lord is demonstrating both His mercy and His justice. He's showing His character as a saving and judging God, as a God who, whose, whose mercy is made meaningful by the fact that truth is upheld and by the fact that, that He is indeed righteous. So that, so that mercy is not just something that everyone gets. Mercy is something that God distributes to whom He wills, as He pleases, when He pleases. And those who receive this mercy, they recognize, I didn't earn this. I didn't have this coming. 
and, and, and God doesn't treat everyone this way. I'm being treated in a way that's special. God is showing me special favor by giving me this mercy. And so uh, the book of Numbers uh, completes uh, the story of Israel's wilderness journey to the plains of Moab where we will pick things up uh, when we come back together next time as we start into the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses will give to Israel a kind of motivation, motivational history of, of God's dealings with them that's meant to keep them focused on doing the law. And then he'll present the law to them, and then he will uh, give them his, his, the blessings and curses of the covenant and sort of his last will and testament uh, before he dies. And then the people go up into the land in the book of Joshua. And, and this whole story, I would suggest, is moving in the direction of the people of Israel having a, a shot at this new Eden from which they are to expand the borders of this new Eden, the land of Israel, until the glory of Yahweh covers the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. And, and we'll see what happens in this program when we continue next time.